Ladies and gentlemen, honoured listeners, thank you so much for continuing to download the Jodcast and sowing your support through email, iTunes and Facebook. Now, one thing that has come up on many occasions is the subject of music in the Jodcast, and we think that this month is the time to launch our new theme tune. So, I hope you're going to enjoy it, but obviously give us your feedback on the usual channels. But I'm confident that you're going to like this as, as much as we do. So... Here we go. If you believe that, you'll believe anything. The Jodcast, with newsreaders that can keep their composure. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Nick Rattenbury, and Roy Smits. The Jodcast, April issue. Hello and welcome to the April edition of the Jodcast. I'm joined today by uh, Stuart and Nick and Megan. Hello, guys. Hi, Dave. Hello, everybody. It's a bit of a miserable day here at Jodrell Bank. Weather-wise, you mean? Weather-wise, it's always it's always a fun, exciting research environment. It's very windy down here in Oxford, actually. So <laughs> it is. it's perfect for Jodcasting. Yes. Well, just be happy that we're radio astronomers and not visual ones. <laughs> yes, we can look through it. <laughs> then it would be depressing. So, on the show this month, we find out about the cosmic microwave background and the experiment which has measured it. We find out, of course, what you can see in the night sky during April. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Methane discovered in the atmosphere of an extrasolar planet. A new age determination for the small Magellanic cloud. And a super bright gamma ray burst visible to the naked eye. Methane is a well-known constituent of the Earth's atmosphere, although it is only present in small quantities, and it has also been found in the atmospheres of Mars, Titan, and all four of the gas giants within the solar system. Now, for the first time, the presence of methane has been detected in the atmosphere of a planet orbiting another star. There are now more than 270 extrasolar planets known, but this is the first time that organic molecules of any kind have been discovered in a planetary atmosphere outside of our solar system. The discovery comes from the Jupiter-sized extrasolar planet known as HD 189733b, a planet whose atmosphere is already known to contain water molecules. The observations were made by a team led by Mark Swain at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory using the Hubble Space Telescope's infrared spectrometer NICMOS, and relied on the fact that the orbit of the planet passes directly between us and the planet's parent star. During one of these transit events, some of the light from the star passes through the atmosphere of the planet. When this happens, some of the light is absorbed at particular wavelengths by the chemicals in the planet's atmosphere, leaving the spectral equivalent of a fingerprint in the light which eventually reaches us here on Earth. By comparing spectra taken during a transit to spectra taken before or after the event, the astronomers were able to detect absorption features due to both methane and water. Although methane is often produced by life forms here on Earth, 
This is highly unlikely to be the cause of the methane in the atmosphere of this planet, since the atmosphere reaches temperatures of 900 degrees Celsius, hot enough to melt silver. Measurements like these can help our understanding of the temperatures, pressures and chemistry in planetary atmospheres, and could possibly be used to search for signs of life on planets where temperatures are less extreme and water might exist as a liquid. The Milky Way galaxy has many smaller dwarf galaxies as neighbours, the most prominent of which are the large and small Magellanic Clouds, which are obvious in the Southern Hemisphere. If galaxies in the early universe formed at the same time, then the age of the oldest stars in these companions should match that of the oldest stars seen in our own galaxy. Whilst our galaxy's oldest globular clusters are thought to have formed at the same time as the Milky Way itself, younger globular clusters within the Milky Way are thought to have been either accreted during encounters with dwarf galaxies that have merged with our galaxy, or possibly created as a result of close encounters between the Milky Way and other dwarf galaxies. Various measurements of the ages of old globular clusters in the Milky Way and other nearby galaxies show that the ages of these populations are the same to within the accuracy of the measurements. The small Magellanic Cloud, however, is something of an anomaly. Observations have shown that globular clusters within the SMC have various ages. The largest of these clusters, NGC 121, is also the oldest of the SMC's clusters, but various age determinations have put it two or three billion years younger than the oldest of the Milky Way's clusters. Recent highly sensitive observations of NGC 121, carried out using the Hubble Space Telescope's Advanced Camera for Surveys by Katharina Glatt, John Gallagher and their collaborators, have resulted in an accurate age for this important cluster, published in the Astronomical Journal this month. These new results help to shed some light on the early star formation history in this well-known dwarf galaxy, and further results are expected from similar observations the team have made of other smaller star clusters in the SMC. Gamma-ray bursts are violent explosions in the distant universe, so-called because they were first detected by high-energy gamma-ray detectors. In recent years, many GRBs have also been detected by telescopes operating in other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, including X-ray and optical observatories. The SWIFT satellite was designed to search for and monitor these distant explosions that occur when massive stars collapse to form black holes. Since it was launched in 2004, the satellite has discovered on average two GRBs a week. On March the 19th, the satellite detected a record-breaking five bursts within 24 hours. One of these was so bright optically that it was briefly visible to observers on Earth with the naked eye. Following the initial detection, the GRB was also rapidly observed with the X-ray and optical cameras on board SWIFT, as well as other telescopes around the planet. The explosion occurred in the constellation of Bootes at a distance of 7.5 billion light-years. For an object to be visible without a telescope at that distance, the initial explosion would have to have been extraordinarily violent, sending material flying out at almost the speed of light. Teams around the world, including astronomers at the SWIFT UK Science Data Centre at the University of Leicester, are observing the fading glow of this extraordinary event, using telescopes around the world, hoping to understand the behaviour of the material involved in the explosion. And finally, the ESO site at Cerro Paranal, located 2,600 metres above sea level in Chile, is to star in the next James Bond movie, Quantum of Solace, due to be released later this year. Filming took place during the last week of March and used part of the site in the Atacama Desert, one of the driest places on the planet, as the headquarters of the film's villain Dominic Green. The height and extreme dryness make it hard for anything to grow out in the open, giving the surrounding desert the resemblance of Mars, 
but providing excellent conditions for optical astronomy. The site is home to many telescopes, including the VLT, or Very Large Telescope, four individual telescopes 8.2 metres in diameter, as well as the Residencia, a building used by people working and observing at Paranel to escape from the dry, thin atmosphere outside. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, I understand that you've got some very happy news, or some very unfortunate news, depending on which way you see it. Well, I'm off to Australia. Why? Um, I've got a new job in Perth. Is it the same as the old job, or are we now working at McDonald's in sort of downtown <laughs> Perth? It's um, Well, yes, it is in Perth. It's um, a postdoc job, and I'm going to be looking at um, supernovae and masers in starburst galaxies, so similar to what I do here, and doing development on the Square Kilometre Array. Ah, oh, yes, and we've heard a lot about the Square Kilometre Array, so it's going to be quite exciting, and Australia's going to be one of the two possible places where it's going to be sighted, so... Um, it's going to be fun to see where where it finally gets sighted. Yeah, that's right. And the the group in Perth, it's a, a brand new astronomy group. They've not had a radio astronomy group at this university before, and they're hiring a lot of people at the moment. So this is because of the SK. They want to have a mm. lot of astronomers in, in place in case they do get the telescope. Now, a lot of our listeners will probably be interested to know that this is not an uncommon experience for the folk like us, like yourself and me and Stuart. We're, we're all postdocs, so we tend to bounce around the world for quite some time doing the yeah, odd, two odd years jobs here, here, three years there. Yeah, so it's yeah. quite a disruptive sort of thing. So are you looking forward to travelling halfway around the world? Yeah, it'll be the first time I've done it, so yeah. Do you like Fosters? <laughs> Not really. It's rather different <laughs> to your English ale, I have to say. Oh, I don't like that either, so that's okay. Our listeners are probably also worried. What's going to happen to the news, Megan? Uh, the news will continue. I am taking a recording device with me, so with any luck... Assuming my boss doesn't complain too much, I will continue to do the news from Perth. That's fantastic. So we're very, very appreciative that you'll continue doing the news for us. So we wish you all the very best for the the job, and we hope that transmission of the news will continue, and we'll hear the news next month. Thank you. Yes, I hope so. So don't worry, Megan will continue phoning in the news every issue. Now, we have lots of listeners who phone in to us, what they think of the Jodcast. So, for our feedback section, what do we got, guys? Okay, well, first up, we have the reviews from iTunes. Thank you to all those people who keep reviewing us on iTunes. So, thanks to Ambutech, who's feeling a little sad that they've now caught up to date with our back catalogue. Um, so, they have to wait two weeks now for the next episode. Um, also, thanks to Chris in Nashville, who found us by following links from the Bad Astronomy weblog. And also to Mantavani and Bionic Squid. Thank you very much to both of those as well. Dave, you've got the emails. Okay, well, Mark Cooper and his father um, started listening to us after we gave them a nice postcard at Astrofest, so thank you for emailing us. Um, thanks also to Susan, who is a composer in the Los Angeles area. She's a fan and ended her email saying, Jardan! And so we shall. And we, we, we shall. presume she said it in just that accent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, though, Jardan. Jod on. I think it's good. Jod on. Yeah, we'll use that. Thank you to David Brands, who said that it's truly the best astronomy podcast around, although he still thinks that the intros can be a bit out there. Thank you, David. (laughs) Uh, He said it was nice to hear Nick on the BBC Material World programme on the discovery in microlensing. Thanks to Brian Harrison, who told us how he got into astronomy, and we'll keep that story for a later episode. Larry Hunt suggested we cover the Pioneer and Flyby Anomalies, and also Kate Mormon, Jason Hill, Ewan, Richard Dockney, 
Richard Ravenlistkowski and Adrian Smith all emailed us as well. Postcards? Yes, postcards. We've got one postcard from Jason Hill, and it simply says, Save Jodrell Bank! (laughs) (laughs) So we will do our best. Yes. So moving on, just to give you a roundup of the Facebook news, the Judcast uh, group now has 132 members. Yeah, we have two wall posts on the Facebook group. Simon Nielsen has posted on the wall saying that the Jodcast is so interesting and informative and tells us to keep up the good work. And Gomem de Soto says, uh, I love the Jodcast, been listening for over a year now. In my job I work nights and spend long hours on the road, so the Jodcast certainly helps the time pass and gives plenty of useful information for, for me. So there you go, that's the Facebook news. Very good. I guess before we go any further with the Jodcast, with the main interview for this episode, um, we thought we would tell you a bit about NAM, the National Astronomy Meeting in the UK, which is happening next week as when, when we record this, from the 1st to 4th of April. Um, we're assured it's not a practical joke on us. Um, it's being, <laughs> if it is a practical joke, it's a practical joke on 650 other uh, astronomers who will also be there. Yes. Um, this year it's in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Yes, Queen's University Belfast. So we're all going to be heading over to Ireland. Um, we have a Jodcast poster that we're, we're presenting there. We will also be doing what we did last year, which is covering NAM for the Jodcast and trying to maybe perhaps not quite have as many episodes as we had last year as we nearly died doing it. But, <laughs> but we will certainly try our best to get as much output from NAM as we possibly can. We're also going to be um, blogging and Twittering and possibly putting a few video clips up on YouTube Yes, indeed. So we're looking forward to it. It's going to be, it's going to be great. There's going to be a lot of fascinating science being presented at NAM this year. We've had a bit of a foretaste of uh, what's going to be presented. So we're looking forward to catching up with all the major astronomers who are involved with this exciting research, and we will be bringing it fresh to your ears. Well, plenty of research has already been done on the cosmic microwave background. Last month, the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, otherwise known as WMAP, released the result of five years of observations of the cosmic microwave background radiation. Now, WMAP is just the latest in a long line of experiments to do this, and we thought we'd find out about one of those experiments. So here's Roy Smits talking to Dr. Richard Davis and Dr. Bob Watson of Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics about the very small array. Richard, can you explain to us what the cosmic microwave background is? The cosmic microwave background is a remnant of the original Big Bang, which occurred some 13 billion years ago. Uh, We're looking back to a time when the temperature was some uh, 3,000 Kelvin, and it's expanded by a factor of 1,000 and cooled by a factor of 1,000, so it's now, we see it as a temperature of 3 degrees, or 2.73 degrees. So temperature means it's the temperature of the whole universe? It's the temperature of the plasma. Yes, it was an ionized plasma in this period at a redshift of... uh, at a redshift of a thousand when the temperature was three thousand degrees and we look back to that region because the gas at that stage was opaque and when it expanded and cooled it recombined it's no longer ionized and from that period it became transparent how long after the big bang did this occur approximately three hundred thousand years so quite close to the big bang when you remember the big bang occurred 13 billion years ago bob what is so special about the three hundred thousand years after the big bang well, it corresponds to this, the sort of uh, initial conditions that were in place uh, in order to actually build the structures that we see in the universe today. So it was all, all the information is sort of encoded into this radiation. 
so by observing it, by looking at the what's called the last scattering surface, which is what the, the cos- our cosmic microwave background corresponds to, is you can actually sort of see little perturbations, sort of seed structure, that will go on in time under a gravitational influence uh, to actually make all the galaxies, clusters of galaxies uh, that you see around today. How can you observe this? Is this radiation? What what frequency? Okay, well, when it initially set off, it was in the in the infrared red part of the spectrum, but with the expansion of the universe, which is expanded by about a factor of a thousand, uh, this radiation has dropped down by about a factor of a thousand in in wavelength. No, it's actually gone up in wavelength, so it's gone down in frequency. So it was it started off at around about three thousand to four thousand degrees Kelvin. So now we actually see it at, at a temperature of three Kelvin, and it has a black body spectrum, so it's just thermal. And the peak of this this radiation now is around about two millimeters. So it, it's in the sort of centimeter millimeter range of the radio spectrum. So I know the cosmic microwave background was discovered in 1965 by Penzias and Wilson. Can you tell us how this discovery was made? Well, they were actually communication engineers, and they, they were just trying to make sensitive measurements of communication. And they discovered that there was an excess emission in their receiver that they couldn't account for. Uh, rather amusingly, they discovered that uh, pigeons had left some excrement in the horn, and they wondered it because that any material with water in will emit radio waves. So they spent a lot of time cleaning all of this out of the horn. Uh, when I say horn, it was a very big, a big horn that you could actually climb inside. It was physically very big. And they cleaned all this thing out and made, re- repeated the measurements. And lo and behold, this radiation was, was still there. And it was, um, they were scratching their heads wondering what on earth it was. And uh, Bernie Burke ha- happened to come upon them and uh, said, oh, my God, you found a microwave background. And a group at Princeton uh, had experiments specifically designed to search for it. And at that stage, they had still failed to find it. And uh, these guys had sort of happened on it by serendipity, really. And they won the Nobel Prize. And shortly afterwards, the Princeton team detected it with their experiments as well. So what kind of instruments do you need to observe the CMB? Well, you need very sensitive experiments. But the interesting thing about them is they don't need to have very high resolution because the structures you're looking at are sort of a, a few fractions of a degree corresponding to what, sort of 10 arc minutes. So you're looking at things sort of on the scale size of moons and planets. That's the sort of angular scale size you're looking at. So it's sort of like yeah, 10 arc minutes. And so you, you actually only need a fairly compact experiment because the, the, the resolution of the experiment is proportioned to its size. So you can actually just get away with an experiment that, that's, that's a few meters across. But it has to be exceptionally sensitive. So you really need the state-of-art uh, receivers built into it. So what kind of experiments have there been in the past to observe the CMB? Well, probably the most famous one in the past is the COBE space mission, and that really drew a line in the sand because th- there were measurements that were beginning to detect things, and what we really want to do is to detect them at different spatial resolutions, different degree scales on the sky. And up to then, it was the, the, the data was very woolly, very washy, it wasn't, it wasn't very accurate. And the COBE space mission really um, completely changed that. What kind of experiment was that? Oh, it was a satellite um, looking at the sky, I believe, with 8-degree resolution, rather low resolution, um, with differencing radiometers on board and was able to uh, detect the, the signal. When they first uh, found this, again, they found there was excess noise. With the first sets of observations, they they were unable to, with their maps, to say 
which regions were really due to the microbe background. All they knew was there was too many um, bumps and lumps in, in the map for it to be just produced by their receiver, but they couldn't be sure which ones were the microbe background. After they observed for several years, they then started to actually be sure which these signals were. And around that time, uh, Rod Davis from... Uh, no relation to me, from Jodrell Bank, uh, had an experiment on Tenerife, and he was actually detecting real lumps and bumps that, that were, were true, although unlike Kobe, Kobe made, made a picture of the whole sky, this was just of a small strip of the sky, and these, these two papers came out around the same time. So what do people use these days to observe the CMB? Well, since then, we've had a range of... Uh, well, I, I'm just going to talk about the experiments I've been involved in because there are so many experiments, it, it's difficult to, on, on this sort of program to, to relate them all. Um, but we've turned our tune more towards interferometers. We built a 5 gigahertz interferometer, which operated at Jodrell, and then a 33 gigahertz interferometer on the island. At the same time, Cambridge University built a... 15 gigahertz interferometer, uh, which was based at Lord's Bridge in, in Cambridgeshire, near, near the university. And all those machines uh, detected um, the microwave background. I guess the 5 gigahertz one mo mostly detected synchrotron radiation. We didn't really see the cosmic microwave background from that. But from all that uh, is, has developed the VSA, and we were invited to join in with the Cambridge group uh, we had a meeting, uh, several of us from Manchester went down to talk with our colleagues in Cambridge and we discussed the idea of building an interferometer together at 30 gigahertz, which is the VSA, to be erected and built on the island of Tenerife, uh, where the other previous radiometers had been. We'd had the experience of working on Tenerife with radiometers. Cambridge had had the experience of working with interferometers uh, at Cambridge and so we put all this together and uh, came up with this 14-element uh, machine with some 96 baselines, I think, if I remember correctly. So the VSA is an effort for multiple groups? Yes, it's, it's run by a consortium, and the consortium consists um, of Manchester University Jodrell Bank and the Radio Astronomy Group of Cambridge University and the Institute of Astronomy of the Canaries, called the IAC. So I understand VSA stands for Very Small Array. Yes, it was really a bit of a joke on the, the VLA, really, the Very Large Array. Uh, the Very Small Array is only uh, on a table, which is only four metres across. Uh, we've essentially got most of the hardware of one frequency channel of the entire VLA, the Very Large Array in, in the United States, but built on a table only four metres across. So it's really jam-packed with electronics. It's just the telescopes have to be very close together. The reason they have to be close together is because we're looking at the cosmic microwave background, which is rather diffuse with large angular scale on the sky. And if you want to look at something with large angular scale, your interferometer needs to be small. The bigger your interferometer, the finer the scale that you look at. And how long has the VSA been running, the experiment? It's been running since uh, the beginning of the year 2000, uh, and has been running ever since. So what exactly does it do? It observes the cosmic uh, background radiation, uh, but does it do that constantly, or does it do a small part of the sky? Well, it has. It tries to observe because the whole point of getting very sensitive results is you need very long integration times. So because it's 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 not an, uh, a satellite, it's it's based on the Earth. You have a, a major constraint, which is rotation of the Earth. So we have generally three or four. Uh, areas of of sky that we're interested in integrating down on, and we s 
observes these while they're transiting over, over the sky. So we generally observe them for about five hours while they're going over. And in between those, we have to do calibrations, all the boring um, housekeeping that you need in order to actually uh, establish the, uh, the pointing, the phase, the overall temperature calibration. So that, that, that's what we actually do for the, the, the cosmic microwave background experiments. Are there any other experiments that you wanted to VSA? Well, the, there are other sorts of observations. There's the SZ effect, the Sunny Zeldovich observations, which where you look at a, a supercluster and you look, try to look for a, a decrement signal, which cause, is caused by CMB photons interacting with a very hot uh, electron gas around it. And it's, uh, the, the, the photons are given a slightly increase in energy, which makes a deficit of photons at the lower frequency and an excess at the higher frequency. So, of course, we're working down at, at, the, at the lower side of the, the CMB peak, we see a, a deficit. And you want to do these sort of experiments to sort of try and track looking for missing mass, sort of missing baryonic mass, is it to be more correct. Uh, so even though you have this, this hot electron gas around it, it must, must be associated with that some protons. And for the sort of effect that you can see, then there must be a, a significant amount of mass there. So it's one part of sort of trying to solve this puzzle of where, where this missing baryonic mass is. Are there any recent results with the VSA? Yes. What we've found in our latest set of publications is, and a similar thing was seen by uh, WMAP, is if, if we go back to the early stage of the fluctuations that we're measuring that existed at this earlier epoch, then the theory of inflation, uh, which is what we think governed the universe, um, means that these fluctuations, the density fluctuations, should be present on all scale sizes. That's a direct prediction of the inflation theory. Now, the WMAP data, this is the latest NASA spacecraft. So the WMAP data seemed to indicate that the fluctuations in density were not uniform across all angular scales, and uh, with not too much confidence, about 70% confidence, and we don't like, scientists don't like to work on just 70% confidence. We, we really don't like to work on anything less than 95% confidence. And uh, when we looked at the VSA results very carefully, uh, we found that there was much stronger evidence uh, for this um, variation in the uh, scale sizes of the density fluctuations. And uh, the current probability that, we, that this is true is now 97%. So we're beginning to get in the regime where we think this is real. And this does have repercussions for the theory of inflation. So watch this space. We, we hope to follow up on that. What does it mean for the theory of inflation? The theory of inflation, we would expect the fluctuations that we get to be what we call Gaussian. They would look just noise-like. There, there would be no structures, no no sort of wormholes or any any, stru any any structures like that. The theory of inflation would not allow such structures to exist. And of course, if we do see anything like that, it has very great repercussions for the theory of the early universe. So, what does inflation exactly mean? Okay, this this is probably the most bizarre thing that we can talk about today. Uh, we have to go back to a time when the universe was very, very young indeed. Uh, we scientists measure time uh, with a scientific notation. We put a 10 to the minus so many numbers uh, where that represents a t very tiny fraction of time. We say 10 to the minus 35 of a second. It corresponds to the decimal point followed by 35 zeros and a 1. And uh, at that epoch, um, the universe whole universe would have been a million, million, million times smaller than the diameter of an atom, roughly speaking. 
within a factor of 2. In the next 10 to the minus 35 of a second, you would think it would double its size to 2 million million millionths of the diameter of an atom. And it did something rather strange, we believe, at that time. It suffered what we call a phase transition, and the best way to describe that is a bit like boiling water. So the universe expanded at a very high rate. It appears to be going faster than the speed of light, but I, I'm, I'm told that it's not really moving faster than the speed of light. Mathematicians or theoretical physicists explain it as saying the frame has moved. And so in the next 10 to the minus 35 seconds, instead of just doubling its size, it finished up as something like the scale size of a human being, a few metres in diameter. We need this to have happened because we find the microwave background is, is very smooth. Now in the early epoch, in, the begin, in, in this early, very early time, we think the universe was all sort of wrapped up. I like to take the analogy of a, if you take a rubber balloon, a, children, a child's balloon, and put it in some liquid nitrogen, it will all sort of fold itself up into a sort of crinkled mass. And sort of every bit of the balloon is touching every other part of the balloon. And there's lots of crenellations and lots of detail. Now, if you take that out and let it warm up, eventually the liquid nitrogen inside the balloon will boil and it'll go pop and be totally or almost totally smooth. And basically, this is the problem we've got. Because when we look out at the early universe, when we look backwards in time, we see that the temperature of the microwave background is almost the same everywhere. So each bit of it seems to know about all the other bits. We refer to this as causal contact. It's as if all the parts of the universe were in causal contact. So how can that be? How can it be that one bit of the universe in this direction is in causal contact with another bit, which is sort of like 180 degrees away? They all, so they all seem to have been in causal contact. So if we think of this balloon, the universe as being a balloon, which was all sort of folded up, uh, in that very early epoch. And then this uh, inflation occurred, some phase transition. Again, we don't know what this phase transition was. And the universe goes pop, and it expands from this tiny thing, which is a tiny fraction the size of an atom, to something like two meters in diameter. It now becomes very, very smooth. And uh, we need this because when we look at these fluctuations in the microwave background, uh, they are, in fact, very, very small indeed. Microwave background is difficult enough to detect. It's only 2.7 Kelvin, 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. But the fluctuations in it are 100,000 times smaller than that. So in temperature, they are the order of 30 microkelvin. It's a very difficult thing um, to measure those. So that means something must have smoothed the universe out. And this is one of the reasons that we need this theory of inflation. Why is the VSA in Tenerife? Well, we... Uh, we're, we're measuring very, very sensitive signals. We're measuring very tiny fluctuations. And if you just think of light, uh, the radiation from the sun, and you go outside, then obviously as the clouds go over, we get days, sunny days and dark days, and it, in, in springtime it can go from dark to sun, terribly great fluctuations. Well, fortunately, this doesn't affect radio waves too much, and most of, a lot of our radio astronomy we can do from... A field in Cheshire, Jodrell Bank. But when it comes to making measurements down at a hundred thousandth of 2.7 degrees above absolute zero, it's a different matter. And also when you go up to a frequency of 30 gigahertz or a wavelength of one centimeter, the atmosphere itself disturbs the signals. Now fortunately we can use interferometry and in the interferometer is less prone to these fluctuations than ordinary instruments. It just turns out 
that at the altitude of the observatory at Tenerife we're above the clouds for most of the day, for most of the time uh, you actually see an upside down sky like you do in an aeroplane uh, you actually find that you're looking down on the cloud tops and so these, these things that cause fluctuations uh, albeit small in the radio uh, have gone and in fact we can observe for something like 98% of the time uh, from, uh, from Isania, this is the observatory there may just be the odd day in the year we could observe from ground level in the UK when the atmosphere was really frozen out. So that's why we go up there. And it's nice to spend time there as an astronomer, I suppose. It most certainly is. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, is there anything you would like to add? I think I'd like to say that um, I think studying the microwave background with these instruments is about the most bizarre thing that you can possibly imagine. You have to realize that as you look further out, in the universe, that you're looking backwards in time, and that because the universe is expanding, you're looking back to a time when the universe was smaller. So I think as I explained earlier on, we look back to this early period of inflation, we're looking back to the universe when it was actually um, a million, million, million times smaller than the atom, and yet we're inside this thing. And uh, it strikes me sometimes when I have this uh, onerous task to have to fly to Tenerife. And uh, we use the holiday flights to get there and back because it's so much more efficient and we don't waste so much of the taxpayers' money. If you use the commercial flights, they're actually very, very expensive. So we queue up with all the holidaymakers. Uh, it's not too bad on the way out. It's more bizarre on the way back because they've all got their silly hats on and, and uh, probably a little bit drunk, uh, whereas I've got my soldering iron in my pocket and a few transistors. As I sit and wait for the aeroplane, the idea that I'm flying 2,000 miles away to then climb a mountain, obviously in a, in a motor car, 2.3 kilometers above sea level, to then work on an instrument that's looking out into the universe to study it when it was actually a million, million, million times smaller than the atom. Uh, if that's not bizarre, I can't think what is. And it's a most wonderful thing that we can do this. The fact that these signals actually arrive here uh, they, they're coming through the window now. They travel through glass. But the messages are there that tell us how the universe evolved from this very, very early epoch to the wonder, wonderful thing that it is today. And the fact that you can actually study this, I think, is, uh, is truly fantastic. I can only agree with that. Hey, thank you very much for this interview. So, from one set of people observing the universe to another, here's the night sky with Ian Morrison. Well, the night sky this April 2008. Well, as the sun sets, that lovely region of the sky containing Orion and Taurus and Gemini is setting towards the west, and more about that a little bit later on. Towards the south, relatively high, is the constellation of Leo the Lion. I think of him as on his haunches, as one sees in Trafalgar Square. I think the correct term is Lion Couchant. The bright star Regulus is basically the knees, the front, and something called a sickle arcs round the mane and the head. Just to the left of Regulus, there's an interloper this month, and that's Saturn, and uh, we'll talk about Saturn a little bit later. Lower, somewhat towards the east, we have the constellation of Virgo. There's only really one bright star there, it's Spica. It's a blue white star, quite hot, and about 2,500 times brighter than our own sun. Between 
Spiker, and Denebola, which is the tail of Leo the Lion, is a region that looks fairly empty. But with a telescope, one can see myriads of galaxies. In that direction, which is called the realm of the galaxies, one is looking towards what is called the Virgo Cluster, a giant cluster of oh, well over a thousand galaxies, which forms the heart of what is also called the Virgo Supercluster. With the Virgo Cluster at its heart, it has other smaller clusters surrounding it, and further out, some groups of galaxies, including our own local group. The Andromeda Galaxy is the largest galaxy in our local group. Our own Milky Way Galaxy is second. M33 in Triangulum is third. And in fact, the large Magellanic Cloud is fourth. And then we have quite a number, perhaps 40 or so, small irregular galaxies. So we're a rather small group outlying the Virgo supercluster. Above Leo, high in the sky, we see the constellation of Ursa Major, the Great Bear, in an ideal direction to observe. The part that most people see, of course, is called the plough. The Americans call it the Big Dipper, after the ladle used by the farmer's wife to dish out the soup at lunchtime. The two right-hand stars of the plough point up towards the pole star, Polaris, which, of course, lets us know where the north is. The position of the pole isn't always in the direction of Polaris. Just like a top, the axis of rotation of the Earth, which, of course, points close to Polaris at the moment, is actually processing round. It takes over 25,000 years. So, in a while, there won't really be any obvious pole star. In fact, the star... Vega in Lyra will be relatively close in about 9,000 years' time, and then eventually it'll come back to Polaris. And that, of course, means that our star charts have to be redrawn every so often. And the ones we're currently used are called Epoch 2000. They're where the stars were in the sky on our grid in the year 2000. Prior to that, we used Epoch 1950. So about every 50 years, we redraw our star charts just to try and line up the grid, which depends upon the rotation axis of the Earth, with the stars. OK, let's move on to the planets. Well, we'll start with Venus. It's still just about visible in the pre-dawn sky this month, but its elevation makes it very, very hard to spot. Uh, the ecliptic on which the planets lie, lies quite parallel, not quite, with, with the horizon, so that the planets although they may be some way from the sun, never actually get that much high above the horizon, so tend to be lost in the twilight, or the, the morning, the pre-dawn light. Um, the angular size is about 10 arc seconds, but really there's not a lot of point in looking at it at the moment. Now, it's going to go behind the sun later this month. It will come out again probably around the end of July, when it will become visible low in the west after sunset. So I'm afraid Venus has essentially gone for a month or so. Something rather similar with the planet Mercury. Now, Mercury is also just possible to see before sunrise, but you'd have a real job to find it. It moves behind the sun, and it's at superior conjunction, which means it's on the far side of the sun on the 16th of the month. However, by the end of the month, it actually becomes visible after sunset, and might just be spotted below the Pleiades cluster in Taurus, about 30 minutes after the sun has set. 
next month on May the 10th, in fact, is it's going to be its greatest elongation from the sun. And because in the evening the ecliptic is at a relatively high angle with the horizon, it'll be relatively high in the sky, and that will actually give us the best chance to observe it this year. So just wait till the very end of this month and the beginning of next month. Now Mars is still visible in Gemini, setting towards the west in the evening. Uh, the Mars and the Earth are now separating really quite quickly, so the brightness and angular size are falling quite rapidly. Um, it drops from 7 to about 6 arc seconds during the month, and its magnitude from plus 0.8 to plus 1.2. So it's becoming less obvious. I'm afraid that even with a telescope, all one will see now is a rather salmon pink disk. Jupiter. That may now be seen in the pre-dawn sky. It's, it's lying in the constellation of Sagittarius, where it remains throughout the month. At the beginning of April, it, it rises about 3 o'clock in the morning, three hours or so before the sun. However, sadly, at this moment in time, Jupiter is at about the lowest point in the ecliptic. So it never rises much above the southern horizon. And in fact, at its best time to see just before sunrise is only about 15 degrees elevation. So our views aren't going to be very good. But even a small telescope will show the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Now I've left Saturn for one of the highlights of the month. So let's begin with that. Saturn is in Leo, just to the lower left of the star Regulus. Starting the month, just about three degrees to the left, and actually closes in very slightly to about two degrees towards the end of the month, so you can hardly miss it. It's at magnitude plus 0.4, and has an angular size of about just under 20 arc seconds. The brightness falls slightly, and the angular size drops slightly because it's now beginning to move away from us, or we're moving away from it. It's not as bright this year as it sometimes is. The rings are closing. They're between 8 and 9 degrees. It does oscillate a bit, and we're coming up to about a 9-degree tilt. And so it subtends only a few arc seconds. So there's less apparent reflecting area. In fact, next year, at a couple of times, the rings will actually be edge on to us, and so we won't really see them. A small telescope will easily show you the largest moon Titan, and a band across the surface, sort of an equatorial band. One of them is usually reasonably easily visible. So it's a good month to observe Saturn in the evening sky. Well, finally, what about some highlights of the month? Sometimes I pick out what I call a skyscape, where you have a particularly nice grouping of stars or planets and constellations. And, in fact, on the evening of the 8th of April, if it's clear and you have a good low western horizon, we'll actually see a three-day crescent moon. That's a lovely thing to see in its own right. You may well see the old moon in the arms of the new moon. But that will be just below the Pleiades cluster. To the left of the moon in the Pleiades, we'll see the Hyades cluster and the bright star Aldebaran, and further towards the south, the constellation of Orion the Hunter. So looking towards the west, the evening of the 8th of April could be very rewarding. Well, there is, after a while, a meteor shower this month. It's called the Lyrids because the radiant, which is where the meteors appear to come from, is in the constellation of Lyra.
And the peak of that shower, which actually has been observed for at least 2,600 years, is on the 22nd of April in the early morning. Now, sadly, that's only a couple of days after full moon, which is on the 20th of April. So the sky will not be that dark. So you'll only have a chance to see the brighter meteors. But occasionally, as happened in 1982, we actually pass through a clump of particles. And in fact, in that year, over 90 meteors were seen within an hour. So you never quite know when that's going to happen. So if it is clear, it would be worth looking towards the east at about 1 to 2 a.m. in the morning of the 22nd of April. On the Night Sky website, I put a link to a website that gives you the times when you can observe the International Space Station. In fact, I was out with my grandson showing him the moon just a few weeks ago, and he pointed up to this bright light moving across the sky, and it really was bright. It was the ISS along with the space shuttle that was up there, and that was really something worth seeing. So look at that and find out when the space station is coming over again. Because they're adding bits to it, it's getting ever brighter, and it's really quite nice to spot moving across the sky almost regularly. So there we go. Some nice things to observe. I hope you enjoy the heavens. So that brings this issue of the Judcast to an end, I'm afraid. But we'll be back even sooner than the April Extra Edition because we'll have all of the latest news from NAM as it happens. Uh, thanks to all of you for downloading us. Yes, thank you very much, and keep those reviews coming in on iTunes. Definitely. Keep joining the Facebook group. And read the show notes on the website at www.jodcast.net. So, that's it until the next issue. So until then, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan, everyone. Bye, everybody. And just before we finally go, and before the next UK National Astronomy Meeting, we thought we'd play you some audio that we never shared with you before. Yes, there's a few jokes that uh, people at last year's National Astronomy Meeting in Preston thought was funny. So we thought we'd share them with you. And you'll find out why we never broadcast them before. Go on and tell us an astronomy joke. Is it clean? It's <laughs> bad, it's bad. Go on, it's only, it's only going to be funny if it's terrible. Did you hear about the restaurant that NASA built on the moon? No, I didn't. It was terrible. I had no atmosphere at all. Go on, then. One atom says the other atom, I've just lost an electron. The first, second one says, are you sure? The first one says, yes, I'm positive. Go on, give us a, give us a bad joke, then. What do you get if you cross a sheep with a goat? I don't know. What do you get if you cross a sheep with a goat? A sheep times a goat times the sign of the angle between them. That is a bad joke. So here you go, a selection of the finest astronomy jokes. Hopefully they'll have better ones this year.